Hello there. Thanks for listening to the Elevate Christian Church podcast. We exist as a church to connect people with God and each other. Today's message comes to us from our lead minister and preacher, Kevin Barton. We hope this inspires you, grows you, and challenges you in your faith and your walk with Jesus. Enjoy! So we are continuing with our series in the Gospel of John entitled, Rediscover Jesus. And here's what we've been saying. With all that we've been through this last year, with, with, with this coronavirus, this COVID-19, there's been a lot of death, a lot of sickness, um, a lot of worry, a lot of fear um, that has been implanted in our hearts. We've had riots and cities burned down. We, we had a, a very contested election and it got ugly and people got ugly with each other and people were fussing and fighting. And so with all of this, and, and for like six months we weren't able to meet together, with all of this going on, I feel like I have, we have become distracted. We are walking in fear instead of living in faith. And so I want to read a a verse of scripture that we've been reading every week just to kind of launch this. It's Hebrews 12, 2. Paul writes this. He instructs us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. And and what I've been saying is, is I want to encourage you to engage with Jesus in large quantities to refocus your lives, your thoughts, to to recalibrate our actions and fix our eyes on Jesus. And so with that in mind, I want you to consider a a new virtual Bible study uh, that is going to pair nicely with this series. This series is going to go all the way uh, to to Easter. Um, It begins on February the 15th. That's a week from tomorrow. Um, you can go to our Facebook page and sign up. Um, it, this is a study that is at your own pace. So if you're a, a, you know, a night owl like me, uh, you, can, you can do this study at night. And God help you if you're a morning person, uh, you can get up early and, and, and you can do your, your, your study early. I, I, I would ask that you highly consider it. Uh, because we don't want you to just rediscover Jesus for an hour or 30 minutes on Sunday, uh, but we want you to engage with him uh, throughout the duration of the week. So I, I hope you would consider it. Um, and so as we continue this series, Rediscover Jesus, going through the Gospel of John, we've, this is our fourth week. So far we've talked about Jesus, the light of life, Jesus, the Lamb of God, and Jesus, the King of Israel. Today, we're going to look at Jesus, the Lord of wine. Now, you may be watching online or coming here and be like, oh, I like this church. Um, we're, we're going to talk about the, the very first miracle that Jesus performs as he's beginning his ministry where Jesus changes water into wine. So there's this old joke that goes like this. A priest was driving down the road, and he got stopped for speeding. Well, the officer smelled alcohol on the priest's breath, and he sees an empty wine bottle on the floor of his car. Sir, have you been drinking? asked the officer. Just water, the priest priest replied. Well, having none of this, the, the officer slowly and deliberately asks, then why do I smell wine? 
And without as much as a blink, the priest looks down at the bottle and exclaims to the police officer, Praise Jesus, he's done it again. I said it was an old joke, I didn't say it was a funny one, right? <laughs> Before we get into this passage itself, let me say this. This is one of those passages that can divide a church. This is a very controversial passage of Scripture. And I think it's controversial because we tend to focus on the details of the story and not necessarily the spiritual significance that's going on. There are people who believe that drinking alcohol in any quantity is sinful and it's inherently evil. And those people in that camp would argue, and they even teach, that Jesus did not turn water into wine, but rather he turned it into Welch's sparkling grape juice. In other words, there was no alcohol in the wine that Jesus created. I've been studying this passage for over 20 years, and I feel like I've studied it thoroughly inside and out. And I'm going to be honest with you, you don't have to agree with me. I don't find any evidence that that's true. I believe that Jesus did change the water into fermented wine that contained alcohol, and it wasn't grape juice. And I want to spend a lot of time here, but in the passage itself, when, when you see the word wine, it's the Greek word uh, that's translated from the word oinos. And that is the Greek word for fermented alcoholic wine. It's the same word that Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, when he says, listen, don't get drunk on too much wine. Now, obviously, in order to get drunk from drinking wine, that wine requires alcohol. I've never seen anyone pulled over for having too much Welch's grape juice. So everything from the context of the wedding feast that we're going to talk about, to the usage of that word oinos, uh, points to the fact that this was fermented wine. I would say this way, uh, there is simply no solid historical, cultural, contextual, or exegetical reason to understand that this was grape juice. So those who oppose the drinking of alcohol in any quantity argue that Jesus would have never turned water into wine. Because he would be promoting the consumption of a substance that's tainted by sin. And so in this understanding, alcohol is inherently sinful and the consumption of alcohol in any quantity would be a sin. Now let me emphasize this, and I'm sure I'm going to get a thousand emails. Um, I don't think this is the biblical understanding. I believe this wine contained alcohol. Scripture discusses wine over and over again, and it, you, and it discusses it in positive terms. Ecclesiastes 9, 7 says, drink your wine with a merry heart. Psalms 104 states that God gives wine and makes glad the heart of men. That's why we get the word spirits. Amos 9, 14 discusses drinking wine from your own vineyard as a blessing from God. Isaiah 55 encourages us to buy wine and milk. And so from these scriptures and many, many others, it's clear that alcohol itself is not inherently sinful. Now, before you go too far with that, let me say this. The abuse of alcohol, which is drunkenness, 
is biblically sinful, right? The, Paul says, hey, don't be intoxicated by wine. Be intoxicated with the Holy Spirit of God in you. Alcohol is a struggle for many, many people. And it, and it can become an addiction, which is sinful. But I don't think it would have been a sin for Jesus to create a drink that contained alcohol. In other words, Jesus creating alcoholic wine was in no sense encouraging us to leave here, go to our Super Bowl parties, and just get plastered, right? I don't think that's uh, the, the reason at all. In all things, moderation. But there's just this weird stigma about alcohol, and people get really weird around me uh, when there's alcohol. I'll never forget uh, it was about 10, 12 years ago. I don't know how many kids we had then, two or three. And, and we had this wonderful family visit our church, and they came back. And, and it was pretty clear that, that they had found a home here. Um, and this was way back before COVID, right? And so they did what, what a lot of people do. They invited me and my wife and my family to their house uh, for, for dinner. They were going to cook us dinner. Uh, they wanted to ask some questions about the church, get to know, get to know me, get to know uh, Lindy, my wife, and they're now dear, dear friends of ours. And so we're at the house, and, and the, the husband says, hey, if you're thirsty, you can grab something to drink out of the refrigerator. And so, you know, I just opened the refrigerator, and uh, I happened to look down, and there were five Mike's Hard Lemonades in there. There was a six-pack, and, and one of those Mike's Hard Lemonades were missing. And I shut the door, and I turned around, and he was standing there. And you could see, like, he was pale white. And he's like, look, Pastor, uh, those Mike's Hard Lemonades in there, they've been in there for like a year um, you know, I got them last year at the Super Bowl. I've only drank, I only drank one. You can see I don't drink very much. You know, like I was going to be uber offended. And so he went through his spiel and my response was, it's cool, brother. Can I get one? Just kidding. I had sweet tea. Listen, in all things, moderation. You want to have a glass of wine with dinner? That's between you and the Lord. I said a glass not a whole box, though, right? In all things, moderation. And so in this text, we're about to swim around in where Jesus changes water into wine. I want you to understand it has far less to do about wine and much more to do about Jesus, the Lord of wine. You know what wine represents in the Bible? Does anyone know? Joy. Wine represents joy. And so I think the question that, we sh that should be bouncing around our minds and penetrating our hearts this morning is, what wine are we drinking? Because you're drinking one of two wines. You're either drinking the wine that the world offers, or we're drinking the new wine that Jesus, the Savior of the world, offers. There's no in-between. We're either controlled by the world or by Jesus. We're either of the world or of Jesus. We're either drinking the wine the world offers or the wine that Jesus offers. So with that in mind, let's jump into our text. Normally we read the whole text and then we go back through, but this morning we're just going to read a few verses, chat, read a few verses, chat. So we're, we're in John chapter 2. We finally made it out of John chapter 1, and we'll pick up in verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. 
Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. So just to, to set the text this morning, uh, remember last week we talked about Nathaniel and he, Jesus saw him under the fig tree and prophesied about him and Nathaniel, you know, said, you are the Lord. Well, Nathaniel became a disciple of Jesus. Nathaniel is from Cana of Galilee. So a lot of people think Nathaniel was like, hey, we've got this wedding. Uh, you come and come and enjoy this wedding with us. And so that may be why Jesus is there. In the text, we know that Mary, the mother of Jesus, is there. We know that his disciples are there. And Mary comes up to Jesus and she says something very peculiar. Hey, we've run out of wine. Now, we read that and we think, well, that's really no big deal. But in that culture, this was a huge deal. I cannot emphasize how big of a deal this was. This wedding was on the edge of disaster. In the New Testament, in biblical times, weddings were like very, very important. Do you know how long the average wedding lasted in those days? Seven to 14 days. Seven to 14 days. And so in that culture, it was definitely a faux pas to run out of wine. In fact, I don't know if you know this or not, if you ran out of wine, the groom was liable for litigation. He could be sued for running out of wine. And so Mary, the mother of Jesus, the wine runs out and she comes to Jesus and says, listen, we don't have any more wine. We're on day three of a 14-day feast here. This is the third day and, and we're already out of wine. I believe there's a huge spiritual application to that phrase they ran out of wine, and Jesus' mother saying they have no wine. And that application is this, friends. The wine that this world has to offer will run out. It will leave us empty. Remember, wine in the Bible often represents joy. This world and the things that this world has to offer can only offer us temporary happiness it could never bring us eternal joy. Let me just give you a couple case studies, some examples. Relationships, okay? Think about your sweetheart. Remember when you first started dating? You were kind of in that honeymoon phase. Like you did ridiculous things. There are some men in here that won't admit it, but you actually wrote poetry, uh, you know, because you were so in love and everything was good. You complete me, you know, you complete me, that, that, that whole thing, right? Well, over the years, that seems to fade. Intimacy wanes and you're left disappointed. And a lot of people, what they do is they trade that in for a new relationship. Well, this ain't working, so I'll divorce you and marry someone else. And that's not working. I'll divorce you and marry someone else. It's because you're putting on that person a weight they cannot endure. There is no one on this earth that can complete you other than Jesus Christ. Money is also another wine the world offers, right? With money comes opportunity, no doubt. You can buy things, do things, go places. But even the richest men and women in the world will be quick to tell you, I've made all the money I care to make, and it did not buy me happiness. 
You see, friends, the happiness that the world offers runs out. It is temporary because they are all based on circumstances. But Jesus provides new wine. Jesus provides eternal joy. And perhaps you're here today or perhaps you're watching us online today and you were once intoxicated by the world's pleasures only to find yourself feeling broken and empty. You have no wine. You have no joy. Friends, only Jesus can fix that problem. There is no pill, prescription, no illegal drug, no bottle, no amount of sex, no amount of money that is going to fill you like Jesus does. Look at verses 4 and 5. So Mary says, hey man, I know I invited you to this wedding, but since you're here, we're on day three, and we're out of wine. Look at Jesus' response. He said to her, woman, uh-oh. If I had said that, John Barton would have come out of his chair to my mom, right? <laughs> woman. He didn't say mom or mother. He says, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So my whole life I've heard this passage preached. And when we get to that, that part that seems kind of gruff where Jesus doesn't say, well, mom. He looks at her and he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? Um, we try to soften that a little bit. And, and, and a, lot of, a lot of scholars speculate, well, it was a term of endearment. Um, and the, if you're NIV positive here and, and you read the NIV, they actually add a word that's not in the text in the original manuscript to soften the text. The NIV, Jesus doesn't say woman. You know what he says? Dear woman. But that's not what he's saying. Now, I don't think Jesus is being disrespectful here, but he is somewhat rebuking Mary, his mother. And what he's saying is, is listen, I have come here to do my Father's will, not your will. Jesus didn't bend his will for his mother because he came to do the will of his Father. Then he says something very, very interesting, and we often miss this. He says, my hour has not yet come. Now, if you are familiar with the Gospels, Jesus uses that, that phrase, my hour, over and over again. Do you know what that means when Jesus says, my hour has not come? Do you know what he's referring to? He's referring to his death. The hour of his death. My hour, my death, it, it's not time yet. Mom, you don't control the narrative on my life. My Father in heaven controls the narrative on my life. And you're trying to set events into place that only God can set off. My hour has not yet come. I think this is a very deep and perplexing moment for Jesus that, we get, that gets lost in translation. I think this wedding, where Jesus officially begins his ministry causes Jesus immediately to think about his death. My hour has not yet come. I, I have done so many weddings. Uh, you know, if I never do another wedding, I'm okay with that. But, you know, they're, they're all kind of the same. Everyone's all stressed out about the flowers and food and blah, blah. And people are going all bridezilla. And, it, you know, it can be crazy and chaotic. But once the ceremony starts, right, it's all the same, right? The bride comes down, everyone... Whoosh, 
turns and looks at the bride. And when they look at the bride, I, I get a, a front row seat to this. Everyone turns around and looks at the groom and they have this kind of goofy look on their face like, they're just kind of looking to see how he responds, okay? And so you have this wedding, and, you know, everyone's dressed up, and the, the bride comes down, and they are declaring their love for one another. I want you to think about a single person at a wedding such as that. And by single, I mean they, there's not a plus one to bring. They are absolutely single. Do you know what most people think about if they're single at a wedding? They think about their own wedding day. Will this ever happen for me? Will I meet the right person? Will, will, will I be up there one day with, with my beloved? And, and who will it be? What will my wedding day look like? Now let me finish what I'm saying before you throw some stones here up, up at me. Jesus was single when he came to this wedding. And I think Jesus was thinking about his wedding day. I think Jesus was thinking about his bride. I think Jesus was thinking about you and I. I think Jesus was thinking about the church because we are the bride of Christ. My hour has not yet come. He's thinking about his wedding day. So in this culture, you would get engaged and engagement was a legal binding document. It's not like just put a ring on it and you're engaged. It was you were legally binded, even though you haven't consummated the marriage, and engagement could last for a couple of years. Um, and if you wanted to end the engagement, you had to get a divorce just like you were married. And so once the engagement happened, the female, the bride, would purify herself. She would wash herself and, and clean herself and, and over and over, day after day. And she would prepare herself and her bridesmaids for, for their groom to come. The groom would go home. And he would spend a year, two years, however long it took to prepare a place for her, a home for her. And he would also prepare this huge feast. And so in the middle of the nights, in the night, the groomsmen would blow trumpets and the bride and, and her, her bridesmaids would light candles and they would come and get them and they would go back to the groom's house and this huge elaborate feast would begin. My hour has not yet come, Mom. I think Jesus was thinking about his great wedding day. We read about it in Revelation 19, 6 through 9. Then I heard what seemed to be a voice of a great multitude the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty pearls of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. That's us, the church. And it was granted for her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, you know, that's when, when the blood of Christ cleanses us, it makes us bright and pure. We're clean. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And it was said to me, these are the true words of God. You see, I think it was in that moment, at the very beginning of his ministry, at Cana and Galilee, 
that Jesus was thinking about you. That Jesus was thinking about me. Jesus was thinking about Revelation 19 when the church is called together and the marriage feast of the Lamb begins. And so I think he's a little perplexed and he says to his mom, my hour has not come because he knows that in order to claim his bride, he would have to give his life up for us before he could do so. So he tells his mom, hey, listen, it's not time for me to fully reveal myself yet. Because when I reveal, when they find out who I am, they will kill me. And I've got some ministry to do before I let that happen. I don't think Mary understands. She simply does what any overbearing mother does, just ignores him. And she says to the wait staff in the kitchen, hey, just do whatever he says. I'm out of here. <laughs> I'm leaving it in his hands. Do whatever he says. Jesus, help us out. And he does help them out. But this is a private miracle. This is not done in public. The only people who knew or would know that Jesus changed water into wine was Jesus himself, possibly Mary, maybe his disciples, and the waiters and waitresses. Everyone else at the party, including the bride and the groom and the parents, they knew nothing about this miracle. He wouldn't yet perform a public miracle. Let's read verses 6 through 11. Now there were six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. They filled them up to the brim. He said to them, now draw out some and, excuse me, and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. The master of the feast tasted the water that now became wine and didn't know where it came from, though the servants who drew the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom. He's calling the groom over here, giving the groom credit for what Jesus did. He said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And then when people have drank freely, when they're a little tipsy, when, they, when they're feeling kind of fuzzy, then you bring out the poor wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. This was the first of his signs. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifest his glory and the disciples believed in him. I want to pull a few things out of this text really quick. Uh, the first thing is this. I told you, you either drink the wine the world offers or the wine that Jesus offers. The wine that Jesus serves is incredible in both quantity and quality. Now, don't miss this. It's a wine of abundance and riches. First of all, it's abundant in its quantity. All right? There's a lot of wine. Verse 7 says that they filled those pots up to the brim. Some translations are going to say till they were overflowing. When Jesus does anything, he does it abundantly. Go to the feeding of the 5,000. He fed 5,000 men, 5, men with a little boy's lunch, but there were 12 baskets of food left over. It's always in abundance. Anything Jesus does is abundant. He came to give us life, to give us abundant life, overflowing, filled to the brim, joy. The text tells us that there were six jars which held 20 
to 30 gallons each. All right, that's a lot. So we're going to estimate high just for a second. All right, let's assume they were all 30 gallons. There's six of them. You know how many gallons of wine that is that he created? 180 gallons. So I did some research, the things I research. The average bottle of wine contains 750 milliliters. Do you know how many bottles of wine it would take to make 180 gallons of wine? 900. 900. If you lined those wine bottles up end to end, it would be over two miles long. So this is a lot of wine. This is a big party. This is a long wedding feast. And Jesus is the Lord of wine, abundant wine. Jesus always gives us more than we need. That's why we sing that song, all of you is more than enough for all of me. More than anything this world has to offer us. Now, it wasn't just a wine of great quantity. It was also a wine of great quality. Verse 10, the, the butler or the, the, the master of ceremonies, he tastes it and, he, and he, he says to the groom, hey man, everyone serves the good wine first. And then when people have drank freely, the poor wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. Okay, so here's essentially what he's saying. I've, I've officiated a lot of these weddings, me and my crew, and it's always the same. Everyone brings the top shelf stuff out first to make a good impression. But as the week progresses, then they bring the cheap stuff out, right? So day four or five, they start serving Mad Dog 2020 or Ripple or, or, or whatever, the, the cheap stuff. Let, let me say this. I don't think the wine that they served at the beginning of that wedding was cheap at all. I think it was good wine, but good is subjective, isn't it? And Jesus is so great, he makes our good seem ordinary. The quality of anything that Jesus touches is top shelf. Hear me, including you, when he regenerates your heart. I want to draw your attention to back, uh, back to verse 6. And I think John puts this in there for a reason. I want you to pay attention to a particular detail. Now, there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. To me, this is the money verse. I think John goes into great detail to tell us that these weren't clay pots. These were stone water jars. These were huge stone containers. Containers that were used for what is called purification rites. Um, the Jewish nation of Israel would have fared very well with COVID-19. Because they were always washing their hands, man. Always. If you were going to eat before you ate... You had to wash your hands regularly, but then you had to ceremonially, I can't ever say that word, maybe I had too much wine, ceremonially wash your hands. It had to run down your elbow. If you went to a wedding, you had to do the same thing. If you went to someone's house to eat with them, you had to do that. If you wanted to worship, you had to continually clean the outside of your body. Your hands had to be clean. You couldn't worship. Couldn't go to a wedding if you didn't do that. And I think it was the ceremony 
that had everything to do with the outside. Clean the outside, put on airs, make appearances, pretend that if we appear clean on the outside, we're okay. This is one of the major themes that Jesus would always fight against in the New Testament. People pretending to have clean hands on the outside, but their hearts are dirty and filthy on the inside. No doubt some of you are here today doing the very same thing. Some of you watching may be doing the very same thing. Week after week, month after month, year after year, you punch your ticket and say, I'm in church, God, but there is no fruit. There is no transformation. There is no life change. You're doing the very thing that Jesus came to abolish. You know that, right? Jesus always had issue with the Pharisees. You hear that word a lot. The Pharisees in the New Testament were the religious leaders. And they had put a huge burden on the nation of Israel to clean up the outside of their lives. How many commandments are there in the book of Exodus? Does anyone know? Ten. That's God's law, those ten commandments. Do you know how many commandments there were after the Pharisees added different rules and laws and commandments? It went from ten to six hundred and thirteen. 613, you, it was impossible to be able to obey all those commandments. It wasn't fair, you see. That's why they're called the Pharisees. <laughs> you see, they appeared to be holy on the outside, but on the inside they were corrupt. Jesus has this encounter with them in Luke 11. I want you to see this for just reference. Pick up in verse 37. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he, Jesus, went in and reclined at the table. Don't miss the language here. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. This isn't a hygiene thing here. It's this ceremonial cleaning. Jesus didn't do that before he sat down to eat dinner. Jesus knew what he was thinking because he can read people's minds. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? And so you've heard this before, right? He's using the, the dish illustration. You know, you have this bowl or this cup that's clean on the outside, but on the inside it's not been cleaned, it's filthy. Um, so my kids, when they were younger, they went through the instant oatmeal phase, like strawberries and cream, banana and cream. And you just rip that thing open, pour some hot water and put it in the microwave, stir it, and they would eat it. Uh, but they would, when they were done eating, they would put their dishes in the sink and they wouldn't rinse the oatmeal out. Have you ever washed a bowl of oatmeal in the dishwasher and then tried to, like, it's like concrete in there. Okay, and so we would have to soak it and rewash it again because you didn't want to, you know, use that bowl because there was still all this dirty, grimy, concrete oatmeal inside of it. This is what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees. This is what Jesus is saying to us. This is what Jesus spent his entire ministry fighting against. Stop looking on the outside just because you appear to be clean. Stop pretending that you have it all together, that you are the man, that you are the woman, that... that that you are the best and that there's nothing that has been changed on the inside. 
I mean, our churches are full of that. Pretenders. Fans, not followers of Jesus. Something else I would have you note, I'm way out of time here, is I want you to notice that these are stone jars. They're not clay. Now, why did John go into the detail to mention to us that these are stone jars? We don't know. I'll give you my opinion. I think because John is talking about our hearts. You see, many people appear to be religious on the outside, but they're not. They have cold, dead, unregenerate hearts of stone. And friends, that used to be me until Jesus, the Lord of, the Lord of wine, changed that for me. I want to point you to two passages in Ezekiel real quick. Ezekiel eleven nineteen, And I will give them one heart, a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. Now he's addressing the nation of Israel, but I want you to go to Ezekiel 36, 26 because he's addressing you and I personally. And I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. In other words, those six stones, that's just, that's just water for ceremony, religious rites. There's no heart change. Jesus says, I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in you drinking the new wine and letting it bubble up from the inside out. Salvation doesn't happen from the outside in. It happens from a new, regenerated heart that can only be planted there by Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. I would say it this way. Not only... Is Jesus the doctor, but he's also the donor. He gives us the new heart. If you would go into the doctor's office tomorrow and sit in front of that doctor, and he or she would say, Hey, man, I've got some bad news. Your heart is failing, it is riddled with disease, and you most certainly are going to die. And I don't even know how you're alive today. But then the doctor said, you know, I've got good news. There's a perfect replacement heart that's just come in. In fact, it's going to serve you better than your old heart ever did when it was healthy. Would you agree to that transplant? I would. I mean, what would you say? I think it would be strange to say anything else but, doctor, where do I sign? Let's, get, let's do this. Well, friends, the donor heart is available for you and I. The doctor, Jesus, the great physician, is waiting to perform an operation. Jesus is not an ambulance driver. He's not here to come clean up our mess and scrape us off the road. He is a skilled surgeon. And he came to give us a heart transplant. But here's the Here's the thing that prevents so many people from truly coming to the Lord. It's this. The fact that you have to agree with the diagnosis. The fact that you have to put your pride aside and say, yeah, my heart is sick. 
I have tried the wine of the world. I have tried everything this world has to offer, and I'm sick. I need a transplant. And the only one that can give you that transplant is Jesus Christ, our great physician. Will you come to him for a new heart? Ezekiel says, I'll give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit within you. I'll remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Why would you die with an offer like that on the table? So I have just, in conclusion, two questions I would love for you to wrestle with this week, love to bounce around in your mind and through your heart this week. Question number one is is this. Can you admit that your wine has run out? Can you admit that you're broken? Can you admit that your pride, your sin, your rebellion against God has caused your heart to turn to stone? And question number two, would you drink deeply the new wine that Jesus serves, the abundant life that Jesus offers to you by taking out your heart of stone and giving you a new and a living heart. Back in the text, it's not going to come up on the screen, but remember what Mary says when he's like, woman, what do you want me to do about it? She turns to the servants and she says, hey, do whatever he tells you. And I think that's what God is saying to us today. Hey, do what my son tells you to do. Jesus says, you want a new heart? First, we have to repent. We have to admit that we have a a heart condition. We confess that Jesus is Lord. And that confession is telling us he's going to give me a new heart. Obviously, we have to believe and call on his name. And then in Scripture, you have this picture of baptism. Where Paul says you are buried, you're dead, but you rise to walk a newness of life. You have this heart transformation. And the, the whole purpose of the New Testament is, hey, we need to tell other people. They need a heart transplant. Mary says, do whatever he tells you. Will you do that today? We hope you enjoyed listening to our podcast today. If you'd like to learn more about Elevate or partner with us in what God is doing here, check out our website at elevatecc.com. Until next time, God bless you and thanks again.